Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm Terry Sultan. I'm the director here at the Parish Art Museum, and I'm thrilled to welcome you. Tonight's film is presented in collaboration with the Hamptons Dock Fest as part of the Artist Lens series here at the museum. Uh, and this season, throughout the whole year, we're going to be focusing on women artists. And I want to thank the director of the Hamptons Dock Fest, Jackie LaFaro, for being such a great partner. This has been a really wonderful um, partnership. Thank you. This documentary follows the artist Ursula von Ringsvengard. I had to ask her exactly how to pronounce it, and she said there's two different pronunciations, and I should pick the one that I like the best, which I thought was actually very generous. As she completes recent commissions for MIT and Princeton University while exploring her struggles, her passions, and her drive to become an artist. I would say that I first saw Ursula's work when I first moved to New York in uh, 1985, and I have been a big personal fan of her work for all of these years, and it's been a real honor and a pleasure to, to finally be able to welcome her here to the parish. Ursula was born in Germany. Her mother was Polish. Her father was Ukrainian. Uh, you'll learn from the documentary um, all that coming from that kind of a cultural heritage involves. Uh, right now, she's based in New York City, and her work largely focuses on towering cedar structures with intricate networks of individualized beams. That sounds very poetic, and it's also quite true. They're shaped, they're lyrical, they're cut, they're glued together, they're puzzle-like surfaces. They're very abstract in one way, but also very sensual and, uh, and both spiritual and physical in another. They reference landscape, the human body, and are kind of utilitarian objects, and they all just get kind of mushed together into something that is really very personal and universal at the same time. It's, they're quite extraordinary. Uh, after the movie, uh, Ursula and I will sit and talk for a little bit and then, uh, and then take some questions from the audience. Uh, the director of this film is Daniel Traub, who is from New York City. He's a photographer and a filmmaker. And his work focuses primarily on border region and marginalized communities. So you could say that you know artists are bar marginalized communities and border regions. But he has also done documentaries on uh, other artists like uh, Lily Ye and Sue Bing. So he got involved with Ursula in a, in a very profound way. And I think we're going to very much enjoy the point of view that he has brought to explaining and revealing Ursula's creative process to us. statement you want to have to why do I make art mostly to survive to survive living in all of its implied layers to ease my high anxiety to numb myself with the labor and the focus of building my work objects or the process by which I concretize my ideas feel so good because I invariably, especially with my monstrous pieces, run into intense anxiety moments 
from which I have to unravel myself because there's a pleasure in it, because there's a pain in it, because I endure a hefty load of self-doubt, because I have confidence in the possibility of seeing this work through, because I see life as being full of abominations, because life is full of marvels close to miracles, because I still don't get who I am, because I will never get who I am, because my deepest admiration goes to those who have made art that has interested me, because I want attention from those who make good art, because I need to use both my body and my mind. The labor of my body is what keeps me awake and alive, what numbs me and offers a kind of veneer between me and the things in life which are painful to face because the visuals, that which I perceive through my eyes, are an extraordinarily important part of my life. Because I don't want to be doing anything else with my life that the building of my artworks feel like the most consequential thing I could be doing with my time. Because I can run into a world of my making both physically and mentally because I like working with a group of assistants who become another kind of family, because I like the daily rhythm, rhythm of going to my studio, because it's a place to put my pain, my sadness, because there's a constant hope inside of me that this process will heal me, my family, and the world, because it helps fight my inertia, because I like embroidering around my long-ago Polish fantasies, because I can reach into the future with my work, because I constantly need to try to better understand the immense suffering and pain of my family that I never seem to be able to really understand. And also, I want to get answers to questions for which I know there are no answers. Was that film hard for you to make? I don't think it was hard for me to make, but Daniel Traub started it five years ago. And for five years, he just followed me around, <laughs> mostly in the studio. And it wasn't until the last three or four months that Bloomberg Philanthropy came to, to, to help us. And they, had, they actually had film editors who edited the film and who put things in from way back mm. uh, so as to you know, get, a, get a broader understanding. And they were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So I think that it was a really consequential thing that somehow we bumped into them and, and they came through. You know, you're, um, you're very generous in your film and what you just read and, and just in the short time that we've had conversations together. You're very, very articulate about what it is that you're doing and, uh, and why you're doing it. And you're very generous about sharing that in ways that, that a lot of artists are not. Is that something you consciously decided to do, is 
try to share what drives you as an artist? I, I don't see it as being generous. I see it as that's, that's what I can do, or that's how I can do it. That's the only way I can do it. Because always, I think many of us, when we speak, we try to say something akin to the truth. And to get at that is almost impossible, especially if you're talking about art, because Art is obviously so, so visual that it is so different, difficult to come upon it verbally for me. But I'm so happy to hear that you say I'm generous. <laughs> but I don't feel like I'm generous. I feel like I am trying to say something that's akin to, to something that feels like, I don't want to use the word truth, but, but that feels like it's coming close somehow to the truth. The other thing that strikes me about your work and about the way that it's presented in this movie is, you know, I know that there's a lot of anger, pain, and angst that drives a lot of the practice in your studio, but there's a, a tremendous sense of joy in the, the realization of this work. I mean, I see you sitting at the table with all of your, your assistants, that great picture of you at the top of the sculpture with that beautiful smile and your arms outraged. Like, there's just like this absolute sense of you know, unmitigated joy, almost like a release of working so hard to get to that place. I don't know what to answer <laughs> because I love joy. I mean, I, it, but that's, a, that's kind of not a smart way of saying it. But <clears throat> it's not as though I celebrate. But see, I'm, I'm starting to say that now. And I'm saying I could say the opposite. And the opposite would be true. <clears throat> that when I do work that I feel is good, I want to be able to celebrate it. Uh, but it's not as though. See, I'm, I'm going to be, be tying things in a way that's kind of weird, but not, 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 not any kind of celebration where I have a party or where, you know, it's not like that. It's like an inner feeling that something fell together, and it might have fallen together not even because this is what I was really working toward. It's often the best things happen where they go wayward, you know, when they go on their own path. But there's something inside of you, and you don't know what it is. You don't know where it is. It might be the brain, but I don't know. But it might be something that's like intuition. Of course, that has to do with the brain. But you need to follow it, and you don't, need, you don't follow it like, all right, I'm going to be tied to you, and I'm going to, cause, because you don't even know what it is. You don't even know, you know, you, you, you don't even know how it looks and how, you know, but there are things that one has to, in a way, that, okay, that I have to, in a way, sort of calm down, and that within that calm, that that excitement becomes something else, and that there is a kind of, it's not a calling, and it's not a will, as though you have to do this. But you're, you're feeling things that are very deep and very gentle. 
you're feeling and somehow they're helping you to go to a place that might be better than it was before. See, are you understanding any of this? Okay. Yeah, that's pretty clear. That's clear. <laughs> when you were coming up out of school and just starting to become an artist, as a woman sculptor who was really engaged in a pretty physical aspect of making, uh, what was it like for you? Were you competing with the guys? Did you feel like you had your own agency? Do you mean once I came to New York yeah. City? You know, I, I, I didn't think too much about what the guys do and what I do, you know, but somewhere in there, inside of me, I have a feeling that, I, I don't know, I've never said this before, but I, but I have a feeling that somewhere my father is something that I want to say, see, you know, and of course, in reality, that would never happen. He would never see, he would I don't think I've ever said to my father anything that was more than a short, quick sentence, mm. because he had no tolerance for anything that had to do, first of all, a conversation that, that didn't have to do with work. Work, work was an extremely important thing of his life. But anyway, I, I'm not going to go too deeply into that, and I think I lost my track. <laughs> Who did you feel kinship with in those early days in New York when you finished with school and you were thinking about, I don't know, it was different in those days than it is today with, you know, try to find a gallery, try to find people who, you know, will uh, support your work, collect it. Did you have a cadre of other artists that you talked to and felt kinship with? I, I don't know if I had a cadre of other artists. And the people that I went to, I went to Columbia University, and this was 1973, 74, and 75. It was my master's. And I say in the film that I had this wonderful guy that was a, he was the one that gave me the cedar. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just, just a huge sweetheart. And he helped make my place, my, my loft, like somewhat, we, it, it was, it made us, he made us somewhat able to live in, <laughs> in it. Um, what was your question? <laughs> Did you have a cadre of, uh, of uh, pals that you yeah. talked to? Or? No, I, 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 think, I think that, that that took a while for me to, to get. I have many friends now, many artist friends that I absolutely adore and who we were very close. But I don't think that I had them when I was a student. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to say that I was the only student, because everybody went away during the summer. So I was the only student that was able to you know, that was able to stay during the whole summer mm -hmm. because my, my daughter and I lived there. And I remember like being alone working and that there's somehow that, that some of the magic would come more readily, you know, if, if I wasn't with this group. 
And the, the torture thing was is that steel, I could not work with steel. And the other torture thing was that they were the minimalists who were the big boys during that time. And I just want to make sure that Saul LeWitt is not considered one of them. I'm crazy <laughs> about Saul. You know, but there were some of the others that were so, you know, they were scholars. They were, they had a theory about everything that they did. They thought that having any emotions in your work was, you know, stupid. And, you, you know, that I, I think they used to call it heartless or wh whatever they called it. So that was also a problem. But it wasn't really a problem because I could then do the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, you this because you knew clearly you didn't want that, you know, so you're just making something else. Scale is a big part of your work. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a tabletop sculpture that you've made. Everything is, is massive in its expression. And with these public commissions, they're, they're just, they're so enormous. So is that something that you always imagined that it needed to have this, you know, a kind of a universal gravitas? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I have actually small sculptures, never tabletop. <laughs> but I wish I could do tabletop, and I wish I could do more domestic work because those are the ones that sell. <laughs> These monsters are sort of, ah, you know, there's, it's so rare, it's so, and it takes so much time. But I don't make a monster. I don't make the scale unless it really needs it. Mm -hmm. If it's the piece that demands the scale, it gets the scale. And the beautiful thing about the scale is that you can embrace the viewer. You know, they can stand in front of it. You know, because you know some of my scale large-scale pieces are flat against the wall. So you're embracing mm -hmm. someone, which gives you so much more power. You're embracing them from the top and from the sides. Gives you so much more power. And as it does, if you have a three really three-dimensional one, you know, that goes in front, you know, that there's an impact, psychological or physical impact that it has. But I don't do it unless that's what I have to do. Because if, if that comes about, it's almost a whole year of dedication mm -hmm. to this thing, this big thing. But it doesn't make the smaller ones less good necessarily, although I have to say my bigger ones are, I think, are better. But, you know, <laughs> we'll there are portions of the film where we see you drawing and making sketches. But when you're getting ready to make a piece, Inspiration-wise, how does it start? You do, I mean, I, they showed the piece of the image of the, the haystacks and, you know, all lined up, and, you know, I can see that that was an inspiration. But you're in the studio, you're, you're feeling like you want to get going on a new piece. How does it start for you? I don't know. It's really hard to say into words. It might be that the last piece I did it was giving me an idea that didn't fit into that piece, but if I wanted it badly enough, it stayed enough with me, then I carried it through with a new piece. 
but it's so hard to say what the inspiration or what caused, you know, there's no bird that comes and whistles into your ear, and, <laughs> and I'm so glad for it. <laughs> but there are needs, you know, I do have needs, and when they're strong enough, they surface. Uh, and it might be from what's happening in my life, it might be from what never happened, it might be from just a lot of things that I don't know, but they're somehow there in a very abstract way, floating, and they're helpful. Do you spend a lot of time in nature? When you're not in the studio, do you go do outside? Do I spend, spend a lot of time in nature? Surely not enough, <laughs> you know, because I have such a strong, strong work ethic. I don't know, I just, you know, to be in my studio, I feel it to be a place that is so safe. I feel it to be a place where I can really do what I want to do. I feel I don't have to listen to anyone. Mm -hmm. And this <laughs> includes not just, you know, the people that are around you and that talk to you, but, but also the vogues, you know. I don't fold into any of the vogues, or I don't even fold into any of a, I don't know, when they, when they have names for artwork during certain periods in history and all of that. I don't, I mean, I, I probably fit in somewhere, I don't know, but, but I don't even want to think about that. Well, maybe you don't need to care about that. You just do what you do. That's, that's what I do. Well, I think we have a few minutes. Uh, maybe we can entertain a couple of questions from the audience before we finish, if there's somebody who has something they want to ask Ursula. Yeah. So he was saying that in the film, she does mention that she was introduced to Cedar and it became her, her preferred medium in, in working. And Steve just was asking if there was anything that she wanted to add to her attachment to that particular material. It's a soft wood. It's kind of fleshy when it starts because later on it turns, you know, more and more toward brown. So it's relatively easy. We have to plunge, you know, with every curve. And, and, and that's all I, I am. I'm all curves, you know. That, that with every curve they make, you know, they have to have like 30 or 40 plunges, you know, that they have to do with this with the circular saw. I did this for about 40 years, you know, so I know exactly how much I can push it and where I can push it. And we've done things that I'm sure nobody else has done and also tortured that cedar like it never thought it would be tortured. <laughs> But everybody thinks I love cedar. I don't love cedar. <laughs> you know, I tried so hard always to get rid of my cedar, <laughs> you know, to say, Ursula, you know, when there's another truck coming of, you know, from British Columbia, you know, I said, okay, Ursula, this is the last <laughs> truck, right? The last one. And it just doesn't. <laughs> so here I am, and and I'm I, I hate to say that I'm allergic to it. I've been allergic to it for 20 years, so that's why I wear this whole you know gear that's actually very heavy, you mm. know. And I don't know. So there we are. 
that with cedar. <laughs> well, that was interesting. <laughs> so you probably like bronze and copper a little bit better. You're not allergic no, to it. No, bronze is bronze. <laughs> bronze is a very, very hard, dense metal. And it took me 20 years, 25 years, to figure out how to make it softer, mm. you know. And it, and, and it happened by the kind of, it's, they're not pleats, but the kind of waves, uh, they're not even waves either, but the kind of structure, it's a structure that I give the outside of the bronze. You know, that there's a way that it sings and that it pretends that it's not heavy, heavy, heavy. Mm. And the most beautiful thing is what happens at the top with the small perforations being toward the bottom. And I've done outrageous things in terms of, you know, making those perforations bigger and bigger mm. as they go up. And then, you know, these, these awkward fingers, you know, that poke toward the sun, toward the, toward the sky. So I had to find a way of making that bronze behave the way I want it to be behaving and to be something that is much softer and much more open, psychologically open. What's next? What's your next project? Oh, I'm going to Denver, and I have a show at, at a place that is the Denver, Denver Botanical Garden. So oh. it's a huge park. And they just finished building a building that's a museum, almost finished. I'm the first one to be using it. So I'm going to be showing there in May. Wonderful. Well, Ursula, thank you so much. This was very, very wonderful.